Good morning, comrades, and uh, welcome to another episode of uh, Workers' Power. Uh, you're with Bill here on 4ZZZ. Today on our show, uh, the um, we've got plenty of workers' action. I've got a lot to get through, and um, we've got uh, two guests uh, coming in. We've got a couple of guests coming in. Uh, we've got some comrades to talk about the Save the Bolo uh, campaign. And, uh, of course, it's the uh, first Tuesday of the month, so we've got uh, Jeff from the Brisbane Labor History Association uh, coming in uh, to talk about uh, uh, workers' history. So, uh, and, of course, make sure you hang around for the world-famous Scallywag of the Week. And... uh, so, but first off, uh, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land uh, from which we broadcast the Yuggera and Turrbal people. This land was stolen, never ceded. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We also acknowledge all First Nations comrades listening today. We stand in solidarity with First Nations people in their struggles for recognition, reparations and land rights. We live and benefit on stolen land. It's time to pay the rents. All right, before I, I go on to our First Nations workers' actions, I've got a, got a few shout-outs. Uh, um, and and uh, one of them you're going to hear a, a lot about in the later, uh, right at the end of the show, which is a, a big, big, big hint. Um, uh, we've got uh, solidarity to uh, the New South Wales teachers uh, d- down in... Uh, um, in in Sydney, who are um, oh, all across New South Wales, are going out on strike for more than just thanks, and uh, uh, we've also got uh, we'll we'll be covering a, a little bit later. We've got the um, the we've got rail workers uh, forced to take some industrial action down in New South Wales, and also. It's a big day down in New South Wales. There's uh, some bus drivers who who are out on the grass as well. So shout out to them. And also we wanted to uh, uh, recognise uh, just quickly um, uh, one one of our um, comrades in radio, uh, Peter Cundall, the uh, long-time Gardening Australia host who passed away. Um, last week, I think it was. Um, so I wanted to just quickly commemorate that. All right. Well, we we will we shall move on to um, uh, to some uh, workers' action, and uh, most notably, First Nations workers' action. Okay, healing and pride. Wapabara native title title rights recognised over Keppel Island. And this great story comes from Akira Jenkins of the NITV. Now, the uh, Wapabara people are celebrating the recognition of their native title rights over Konami, which is North Keppel Island, and Wapa, which is Great Keppel Island. In a native title hearing on Konami, Justice Daryl Ranga recognise Wapabara traditional owners' native title rights over 567 square kilometres of country off the coast of Yupun, Queensland. The determination handed down on Friday covers 13 islands, the two largest of which are Wapa and Konami. Wapabara elder Uncle Bob Muir 
uh, said that it was a, an emotional day. It's exciting. It's been a long journey as well. It's been a hard job, he said. It's a lot of different mixed emotion, to tell you the truth, but it's something that I'll certainly remember for the rest of my life, that's for sure. It's a great thing for all of us, for our young ones to hopefully look at coming up this way and get involved in the future of management. In The native title application was first filed in 2013, but the Wapaburra People's Fight goes back much further than that. Mr. Bo- Mr. Muir said his people were removed from the islands in 1902. Unfortunately, in the business of taking us off Great Cripple Island, Wapa, they divided families, he said. There were families going down to Brisbane, to Harvey Bay and up to Cairns, so they really divided people. For a long time, it was very hard for us to get back together. 1984 was the first time we had a reunion on the islands and since then, Wapaburra people have been very proactive in working towards today. The outcome from today is something we can all celebrate. Wapaburra traditional owner Leslie Barney said the determination is a step in the right direction. Despite being removed, we have survived as a group and maintained family connection, she said. It's a step towards healing the trauma of the past and provide a new sense of pride to young people. Ms Barney said despite the impacts of colonisation and forced removals of Wapaburra people from the islands, her people have maintained a strong connection to their homelands. It's been 117 years between removal to recognition of our rights, she said. We have maintained our identity and connection despite these hardships. Our elders and ancestors who have passed will be with us in spirit on this day. Mr Muir said he hoped Friday's decisions will mean young Wapabara people will return to country. I see this as the start of a long journey, he said. It's a start and we'd like to be able to look at doing things where our people can get back and get involved in the tourism side of things or education and management. Because we were dispossessed and sent all around the state, I'd like to see our young people coming back, living in this area and being an active part of the community as well. Right on. Well, that's... um some great moves in towards uh you know there's healing and uh, and also there there's pride in in uh in in their in their traditional land so uh you know good on them but uh, still a long hard struggle 117 years uh, since they were kicked off their land and uh um you know uh what's that uh nine years or eight years sorry comrades eight years in the courts um, which is a, it's quite a long time to uh, be be fighting uh, for for your own land. So, uh, uh, solidarity with the Wapaburra people. All right, we've got another win here, comrades, which is great. We, we're full of uh, there's, there's wins and, and and action all around the place at the moment. So, um, last week the government confirmed Scott Morrison's undemocratic voter ID laws will not proceed now or at any time before the 2022 election. 
The government had hoped to pass the laws in the dying days of this year's parliamentary calendar. However, after significant community backlash and a lack of crossbench support, the bill was scrapped. The laws would require Australians to present a form of inter- identification when voting and have been described as an unnecessary hindrance to democracy that would disproportionately affect some voters, including First Nations people. With patchy support for the bill in the Senate, Independent Senator Jackie Lambie sounded its death knell when she announced her opposition. Do the benefits outweigh the risks? No way, not even close, she told the Senate. Labor, the Greens and Independent Rex Patrick also did not support the proposed laws with One Nation, surprise, surprise, siding with the government. The Central Land Council spoke out against the bill when it was proposed with the Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians, uh, Labor's Linda Burney, slamming them as discriminatory. It will have terrible effects for certain populations, the worried Didja woman said. Many First Nations people actually don't have a birth certificate. If you don't have a birth certificate, then it's very hard to get other forms of identification. The laws were proposed as a solution to the problem of voter fraud. However, data from the AEC shows the issue is near non-existent. In a Senate estimates hearing last month, the Australian Electoral Commissioner, Tom Rogers, said that evidence of multiple voting to date is vanishing small. I'll read that again. Evidence of multiple voting to date is vanishingly small. Um, So, yes, great work. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, what a terrible, terrible idea. And uh, it's quite obvious um, what it was used to do. And uh, no surprise the Pauline Hanson supporting it. None at all. What a shrill. All right, uh, move on with the show. Now, um, in the studio, I'm, I'm joined by uh, uh, Robin, who's uh, yeah, a passionate comrade and uh, who's uh, part of a crew who's uh, working towards uh, uh, working on a campaign called Save Our Bolo. Now, for, first off, Robin, what, what, what do we mean by bolo? What, what, what's the bolo? Uh, the bolo. Oh, good morning, everyone. Yeah. The bolo is a bowling club, and is on the site of a bowling club that has been there since the early 1900s. It has its own social history there, and a really important one, which is actually heritage. Uh, the bolo is. Mal- on Mowbray Park, East Brisbane Bowls Club. It's on Shafton Avenue, opposite the Shafton Hotel, and backs onto a very old croquet club, and then Mowbray Park itself in all its delightful glory with its curlews and owls and all sorts of exciting little critters. And it's um, it, 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 of late, uh, in recent history, it's, uh, it's, it's been home to uh, 
uh, to to backbone and to to, to other uh, you know you know community groups and and, and uh, also ba- mainly bands and rock and roll have, has been happening in there and I know we were even there for a for a, for a Wobblies event uh, a while ago so uh, um, y- yeah so who, who's occupying the space now and what type of exciting things are happening in there at the moment. Uh, it's still under Backbone, which is Youth Arts, um, and the council current now owns that land. Mowbray left the park, the croquet and the bolo area to the people of Mowbray Town back when, in his will. Uh, when he died, his daughters sold it to the council, which was their right, and the council therefore owns and, well, has control over the site. Um, Backbone moved in there to host their youth theatre and other groups Uh, and also host functions because there's a bar at bowling club prices. Um, Backbone has now been moved by the council, but they're they're still in situ, but they're to leave the buildings March, early March or late February to go to Seven Hills... Uh, it's a venue that doesn't have any sort of club facilities. It's mainly just a theatre and rooms. And that's why they have, the council that is, decided that it will be bulldozed because it's, to quote the council... Uh, unattractive and... I, I think I remember I saw was one of the words that they were using. Underutilised and unattractive. Oh. And that's to count. What What's happening now is that, and it's it's more frequent, is that the, the venue's being used by baby punk and old punk baby heavy metal and old heavy metal, um, people who rusted satellites were one of the last people that used it, um, all kinds of music, all kinds of theatre uh, and just the most gorgeous crowd come, come there and it's just a magic space and a has a reputation for being a space that people feel very comfortable in. The music, whether they're DJs or specific function groups, love the acoustics in there. There's adequate, great bar, adequate um, toilet facilities. We even have a green room. Wow, there's not many, uh, not many venues around that has a green room. Uh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that's fantastic. And uh, 
So, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, the council is uh, planning on bulldozing it. Yeah. Um, d- d- have they said what they're what they're trying to uh, put in its place? There's a a plan or a statement of action for the Mowbray area park area to do all sorts of wonderful things like put fairy lights in the trees in the park which will really help with the the bird life and other wild critters. Um, They say that they want to green Brisbane and therefore inner city Brisbane, which is where we're based. Uh, The notion in their plan for that the Bowls Club is to get rid of the building and plant trees right on the edge, right on the edge of of the the road. So there's four lanes of traffic outbound and four lanes of traffic inbound at that point. And they'd have the green space, which are the, the bowling greens, to have a nice green time in, I guess. Um, But it just seems very strange to me, and it's my personal opinion, um, that to leave the park basically empty and just the building gone and the, the bowling greens, they're creating a building site. And the building site, of course, it would be magnificent for any developer interested. Uh, would have delightful river views and inner city and sorry, uh, bridge views and supermarket opposite and pub and it would be a great site. To now, put up a high rise. Now, also, I'm 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 going through through your fly here. Now, also, uh, I've noticed that there, it empl- currently employs 27 people. So there's uh, some workers that will be out of work as well. Uh yeah, a lot of the we've at the moment got a manager for the the building and functions. We've got bar staff. Uh, we've got volunteers me and another who I assist with all the live performances or big openings at uh, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Uh, Those people host or are employed under... uh, just just for the performance that occur different performances that occurred during the year that might be under grant of some sort or whatever yeah right on and um so it was revealed uh, that um the the you know they're planning to uh bulldoze it and uh um, but uh, you know there there was uh, then then ensued uh, some community rallies and uh, uh, petitions. Uh, uh, community campaigners urging LNP council councillors to um, at least meet uh, with them to discuss the proposed demolition. But uh, um, that you know the, the uh, I'm hearing that the council are very reluctant to uh, talk with the the campaigners. They aren't. They, they won't. They don't. No, we've got support at council level, state government and federal government level. We've got 
support from the Labour, the Green and the... Uh, there's an independent indep- council. Yeah, 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 yeah. The independents. I think there's seven. It, at council level, there's only seven. So their voice is drowned out by the L- Brisbane LMP and, uh, and councillors. But they won't. They won't. They won't talk to us. And well, so I, that I, I understand they won't, except to say, the decisions made. That is what's going to happen. And so uh, there's a. Uh, uh, and, and the reason, you, the main reason that you've come on today is that there's a bit of a snap action happening um, this afternoon at lunch that you're on your way to. Yeah, I am. At twelve thirty, we're heading towards. Uh, we're he- we're heading to St George. Squ- what is it? George Square. King, King jo- George. King George's Not Square. Saint George. King George Square. Um, when the council, Brisbane City Council, is meeting for the last time before Christmas, so the last time for 21, and we're just going to hand out a few little things and speak to people who are in the square and sing and dance a little well, I, 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 I reckon that there'll be a lot of, uh, you know, uh, comrades uh, from around me, Engine, that, w- that wouldn't even know that this is going on. So uh, it's wonderful that you're doing that and uh, um, handing out flyers. Now, um, so ha- how can uh, comrades take action now? We're developing a website, which is just about there, and it's going to make information much more accessible and you'll be able to trace specifically what area you you want to in, to embrace in the fight. Um, there's also Facebook, East Brisbane Bowls under Facebook, and other social media. Um, there's the building itself, any functions that you know you can you can always know what's happening through Facebook at East Brisbane Bowl, what bands are playing or groups are putting on an evening. Um, there's all kinds of ways, but it's through social media predominantly that you'll get to hear about what the latest activities are, who the the people are that are getting involved and what the rallies are. There's going to be a fair there over a weekend coming up in early Feb. Again, as a fight, fight to save the club fair of all sorts of things happening. Um, But we're going into that really quiet time when... um, Backbone shuts down, so there's no way of booking. We're just looking to see if we can keep it going through the quiet time, but that's all. That's on the drawing board. We, it's all been so quick because the council was quite sneaky about their planning for what to do with the bowls and the bowling greens and so forth. Um, and we didn't really know till April, May, and we've started getting it together, but COVID has kind of interrupted all of that and we're just gaining a lot of momentum now. I know it's 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 a very short time, but the 
the major focus is to save it because it's a community space and it's a beautiful space to use. Right on. Now, um, I've, I've spotted that uh, our Facebook page is actually, uh, so comrades can look it up, it's uh, Save Our Bolo uh, is, uh, is the Facebook page where you find out uh, lots of information. And uh, for those in the city, you're a... Uh, you're in King George's Square at uh, from 12:30 and 12:30 we're kicking uh, and off. You're going to be dancing and handing out flyers and and, and having <laughs> it, a good time, sticking it up the council, so to speak. Yeah, it's going to happen. Well, they they start their meeting at 12:30, so we'll be there for that. And what people decide to do will be what they decide to do. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and uh, letting us know uh, about this uh, important struggle for the... for uh, Some would use the word community. I use the word worker space. It, uh, it is a working it's class. It's both. It is both, yes. Yeah. And it's a fantastic... Uh, um, I've been to many events there, so I've been keeping quite an eye on this. And um, I'm glad you've reached out to us here on Workers' Power. So thank you so much for coming on and um, and chatting about uh, this important struggle. Thank you for having me here to talk. And it's lovely to see you again, Bill. It's a wonderful to see <laughs> you again, actually. So. Uh, Okay, we're going to um, move on. Oh, um, uh, hello, hello, I'm joined by the wonderful Calypso. Hi, I'm Calypso. Hi, it's good to have you in here. And uh, yeah, so we're very busy today, so we, we we better keep moving along. And uh, but um, I, I got I got a win here that I'm going to chat about. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so the TWU, and this is something that we've been covering the whole way through. It's only a short little bit that I've got here, but uh, the TWU, um, a huge win. The TWU reached an in-principle agreement with a FedEx after a long fight, and now workers at all eight major transport companies have one deals that protect their job security. These workers have put in the hard yards over long months after responsibly deferring bargaining during the 2020. Through protected action ballots, national strikes and standing together, without exception, they've won better deals than they were originally offered. FedEx were the last of the eight major Australian logistics companies to reach an agreement with the TWU. A massive congratulations um, to the, the workers around the country for uniting as an industry to win job security. That's fantastic. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just like I said two weeks ago, FedEx being the last ones, they knew that they'd have to make an agreement eventually, the others set a precedent, so they were just kidding themselves by not offering the workers anything. This was inevitable. It sure was. It sure was. So, uh, yeah, and uh, I mean, it's a, it's good to be part of the cycle and, and report the win because we've been reporting this the whole way through, all the, you know, Star Trek. Yeah, it's been uh, months. Yeah, yeah, so uh, it's um, it's it's good good thing to watch. And, and, and then, but the main good thing is to report wins that the workers they've stood up they've fought back and uh and they've won so they faced so much along the way 
they from sure management, did. but uh, they've overcome, they've got their win, and this is exactly what happens when you take industrial action. That's right. If you don't fight, you lose. And uh, these comrades have stood up. Good on them, you know. So, uh, yes, uh, great to report that. And, uh, um, yes, so uh, we, we, I've got another story here that we'll go to uh, before. And uh, this one is on the importance of expressly appointing the union as your bargaining representative. Are you good to go to? No, I can go. In case you didn't know, recently members at Downer EDI Engineering Power in WA learned why it's so important to expressly appoint the union as their bargaining representative. Downer tried to bypass negotiating with the union and get an enterprise agreement Approved by the Fair Work Commission. Sneaky, sneaky. Without even notifying the ETU. Even though they had expressly been appointed as bargaining representatives by several members. The proposed EA would have locked out our members in for would have locked members in for four years on subpar wages with no guarantees of wage increases, said ETU Northwest organizer Ash Bamford. We got wind of it and approached the Fair Work Commission to be heard in relation to the approval application. The Fair Work Commission granted us permission to be heard and almost instantly Downer contacted us apologising for the oversight, withdrawing the application and agreeing to bargain. We likely wouldn't have had this success if our members hadn't specifically appointed us as their representative as opposed to relying on us being their default rep so it's a good lesson for members to go to the effort of expressly appointing their union, said ETU National Council Cassandra Taylor. Downers poorly drafted and rushed EA with below market rates and conditions highlights the need for all workers to have the ETU involved when it comes to negotiations to ensure that that they get a fair deal. Right on. So, yeah, I just wanted to highlight out that it's it's very, very important to, um, uh, you know... it's very important to appoint uh, your union as your bargaining Employers representative. Employers will try to do this all the time. Uh, oh, they yeah. think they're sneaky. You got to be. You got to be ready for them. That's right. Yeah, that's it. You got to be exactly right. And and so what 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 the, the this story is saying if that if these workers hadn't have appointed the ETU as their uh, bargaining, they could have been locked in for four years. For four years on a crappy deal, you know. So. Um, good, good, good stuff. All right. Well, um. And welcome back to uh, Workers Power here on Four Triple Z, where you're with, uh, well, I'm Bill. I'm Calypso. And we're joined by uh, Jeff uh, from uh, the uh, Brisbane Labor History Association. Welcome back, Jeff. Thank you very much, Bill. Um, good to good to have you on board. And uh, so uh, today we're going to be uh, chatting about the Wobblies. Absolutely. All right. So, uh, or, or more commonly known as, well, no, no I think it's more common. Co- which, which one do you think would be more common, the, the Wobblies or the... Uh, 
IWW. I think in Australia they're probably best known as the Wobblies, but they were the IWW or the Industrial Workers of the World. So who were the Industrial Workers of the World? They kicked off in the United States. They were a revolutionary workers' movement and they were founded officially in July 1905 in Chicago. So um, it brought together... Um, socialists from two socialist organisations, the Socialist Labour Party and the Socialist Party of America. It brought them together with militant and battle-hardened workers from the Western Federation of Miners, which was a, um, a union led by Bill Hayward, known as Big Bill Hayward. All right, and uh, so the IWW in America split into two tendencies, the politicals and the direct actionists. What were the ideological differences between them? Yeah, so when they started they at that conference in 1905, they had a, a constitution and a preamble to that constitution that basically called for workers to unite in the industrial field uh, and also to unite to take political action, by which was meant uh, in the parliamentary field. But in 1908, so only three years after they were launched, the movement split between a majority group, which rejected any orientation to parliamentary politics, and a minority led by a chap called Daniel de Leon, who was from the Socialist Labour Party. And they wanted workers to be active on both the industrial and political fields. So when the majority group, the, the non-politicals, the direct actionists, deleted the reference to political action from the IWW's preamble, uh, the SLP group broke away and set up their headquarters in Detroit. So henceforth there were actually two IWWs. There was the direct actionists in Chicago and the political uh, wing of the IWW based in Detroit. Well, you could... Yeah, just just a note on that. Uh, you could quickly fast forward 120 years, and I was actually uh, a bit affected by that because uh, I had to actually uh, leave the um, the Wobblies because of my uh, political affiliations. So uh, yeah, um, but uh, yeah, we digress. Uh, so when did the Wobblies emerge in Australia? So the first IWW groups were established here in Australia by the Australian Socialist Labour Party um, and it was a particularly sectarian and doctrinaire group based in Sydney which took its approach to the IWW movement from its namesake organisation in, in the States, in Detroit. So they adopted the original 1905 preamble and they launched IWW clubs as they called them uh, in Sydney in October 1907 um, they set up one in New, the New South Wales mining town of Cobar in November 1907, in Melbourne in February 1908, in various uh, communities in the Hunter Valley during 1908 and in Lithgow in October 1909. In Brisbane there was a branch of the Socialist Labor Party and they, they simply changed their name to the, um, the Brisbane... IWW Club, um, so it, it had a presence in Brisbane from 19, uh, about August 1910. Um, um, and despite 
you know, quite wide, widespread disillusionment with conventional trade unionism amongst workers in Australia around that time. Um, the IWW clubs did not really flourish and you could look at various reasons for that, but probably the most significant reasons for the failure of them to grow and flourish was the SLP's own sectarian and authoritarian approach to organising was probably largely to blame. So that's the um, the Detroit version of the IWW. Um, um, they, they started but never really took off. Then the Chicago brand of the Wobblies uh, came along. They kicked off in 1910. Um, and, of course, this was the, um, the version that was became known as the Wobblies, um, and they opposed any form of parliamentary politics, and they called for workers to unite in the industrial field, and through, th- through those means um, uh, would socialism be, be eventually created. And I want to read... Um, a quote here from Verity Bergman, who's written the definitive history of the of the Wobblies. Verity writes, After 1910, discontent with the performance of Labor politicians became especially marked, adding force to the arguments of the Chicago IWW against political activity. The failure of arbitration to meet workers' expectations in a period when Labor was in government did not endear militant workers to the Detroit argument that a political party could act as the shield of the revolution. But it did incline many of these workers to the Chicago view that the parliamentary process had nothing to offer a revolutionary working class. And I think that's a fairly accurate short summary um, of of where the differences were and why the Chicago-based IWW or the Wobblies very quickly became the dominant form of um, of the Wobblies in Australia. So they the first uh, local they called them locals. Um, the first was set up in Adelaide on the twenty fourth of May, nineteen eleven. Um, a Sydney local, local number two, uh, was set up in October. In January 1914, the, the Sydney local began publishing Direct Action, which was their, became their national newspaper. Um, and by January 1915, there were locals in Adelaide, Sydney, Broken Hill, Port Pirie, Fremantle, Boulder City, which is in WA, as well as four locals in New Zealand. And so by 1914, the far left socialist movement in Australia was divided between the Wobblies on the one hand and the Socialist Labor Party and the Australian Socialist uh, sorry the Socialist Labor Party and the Australian Socialist Party on, on the other so there's a very clear divide um, between the Wobblies who were totally orientated to industrial action to create socialism and the, the groups the political parties of the, of the far left the SLP and the ASP. So the Wobblies that are here in Australia, would you say that their ideology aligns with the Chicago? Absolutely. So the the, the Wobblies that really took root with this were the Chicago uh, brand of Wobblyism, um, and so they uh, they were no, they were known dis- disdainfully by their political opponents on the left as the Bummery. Um, and they were implacably hostile to parliamentary politics as a strategy or a tactic. Um, and I, I just want to quote uh, from Direct Action, uh, one of their earliest uh, 
issues of, di of direct action in 1914. And they wrote uh, in an editorial, Parliamentarians of all persuasions, reformists, philo uh, philanthropists, sentimentalists and all the heterogeneous crowd who from motives of self-interest or timidity are content to move within the circle which the legal and moral code of capitalism allows throughout the whole course of working class history have been the real stumbling blocks to revolutionary education and action. And they were, uh, as, de as de in, in contrast to the, um, the Detroit Wobblies, as I say, totally opposed to parliamentary action, and they focused on building the IWW as the one big union. So the idea was that all workers should, should unite, overcome the sectional divisions amongst workers, join the IWW, and, and, and through strikes leading up to a general strike, um, there would be a revolutionary situation where workers could can take uh, full control of, of industry. So it was an entirely industrial strategy mm -hmm. with no reliance on parliamentary political parties or indeed uh, socialist parties as they came to be understood. So they saw, like they said in that editorial, that... Um Parliamentary politics is not just useless, but more of an obstacle. Yeah, so they, they saw it as, as uh, what they call the, the bad dope, uh, <laughs> as opposed to their good dope. So the bad dope was um, lulling workers into this notion that they could affect change through parliaments. So counterproductive to what they want. Yeah, that's right. So not only was it not particularly useful, but it was just leading... Uh, people down the wrong path and therefore diverting their energies to, from where they should be devoting them. Um, in practice, the Wobblies' activism took two forms, it seems to me. They, they agitated within existing unions. So they joined existing unions and they agitated within those unions to use direct action, such as strikes and go-slows. Uh, and sabotage, that was another feature of their, their, their tactical armoury. Um, and they believed that workers should take those forms of action, if necessary, independently of the officials of their unions in order to strike a blow against capitalists, win improvements for workers and expose the inadequacy of the existing forms of sectional and general unionism. Um, so that's one one form that their activism took. The other was agitation, um, or more or less propaganda. As I said, what they call the good dope, or mental dynamite was another phrase they used. Oh, to, I like that. <laughs> mental dynamite was a phrase they, they used a lot to describe their, their propaganda because uh, the, the image being it would, it would blow up these false ideas in people's heads and that people would realise that uh, one big unionism through the IWW was the, was the way forward. So they, um, they put a lot of stress on propaganda, which they disseminated through their own newspaper, through pamphlets and posters and stickers, and most importantly through speaking at street meetings. Wherever they were, wherever they went, they would try to hold street meetings to, to spread the good dope. And street meetings um, often of course, brought them into conflict conflict with the police. So when you say street meetings, you mean literally outside? Yeah, the so road. they'd, have, they'd have, have meetings on street corners um, or in, in parks. 
um, any any public places where they could uh, generate an audience and from just people walking past. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and they'd, they'd often start their meetings. Um, they were renowned for their singing, for their songs. Um, and they would often start a meeting um, by someone singing songs. Um, so rather than just launch into the politics, they'd have some performative aspect to attract a crowd. Uh, they were also they would ha- they would have jugglers or people who would do tricks just to just to get people so in. So it was more than just politics. There was also a sense of community building. Yeah, that was right. And, and so it's 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 all about making connections to people. And once there was a crowd gathered, they would uh, they would then hop up on a soapbox and they would start speaking. In time, time for the mental dynamite. Time for the mental dynamite, that's right. And there were Wobblies, well after the, the Wobblies disappeared as an organisation, well into the 1920s, uh, after the Communist Party was formed, there are stories about Wobblies um, still around in North Queensland. One story I heard from a, a member who uh, of the Communist Party told me about they were trying to... St- have meetings of the Communist Party in North Queensland townships and they were struggling to get people interested in coming along. On this one occasion they decided to hold a meeting outside or near a pub. All the workers were inside drinking um, and they, they tried their hardest but these Communist Party members, they couldn't get anyone to take any interest in their speakers outside. This old chap came wandering along and asked them what are you doing and they said oh we're members of the communist party and we're trying to start a meeting and he said oh just leave it to me and he wandered over and stood on the footpath right outside the public bar and started doing tricks and juggling acts and singing and so on and of course that immediately attracted people's interest and the fellows in the bar started coming out um and he was able to draw enough of them out so that the Communist Party suddenly had a, a, an audience and then they were able to start. And it turns out this old guy was a former Wobbly um, and this was part of what they did to attract an audience. So that was the propaganda. So they joined and agitated within unions and they complemented that with um, the propaganda about the ideas of the, of the IWW. And they did that in all, all the places they went to throughout Queensland. When did they start agitating and organising in Queensland? A local was formed in Brisbane in January 1915. It was local number seven, so it was the seventh local to form in Australia. Their base was a building. It was probably a, an old house and the building's name was Mimi, M-I-M-I, and it was in Cribb Street in Milton. So Cribb Street joins Milton Road to Coronation Road. So the house is probably long gone, but that was the street where the Wobblies in Brisbane had their headquarters from January 1915. Their first um, secretary and treasurer was a a fellow called uh, Chas uh, Anlazart, and their correspondence secretary was John Burke. And their first business meeting was on the 11th of January, 1915. Their first public appearance as a wobbly local was at an inter, uh, sorry, an anti-war meeting next to the Robbie Burns Monument and Centenary Place on the 23rd of January, 1915. So for those of you who know um, inner city geography, 
centenary place and the Robbie Burns monument is not too far from the Triple Z studios in between the Fortitude Valley and, and the city. So that was where they, they held their first public meeting as a branch, as a local of the, of the Wobblies, and it was an anti-war um, event on the 23rd of January 1915. Uh, as well as being very prominent in the anti-war agitation, the IWW in Brisbane also orientated to the agitation of the local unemployed. There was a lot of that going on uh, because as, as the war developed, unemployed, unemployment started to, um, to occur as the economy was disrupted and many of the Wobblies themselves ended up being unemployed workers. So they were in the same situation and many of them began working with the unemployed around um, agitation for better... Uh, deals and better conditions for the unemployed. Their propaganda routine in Brisbane comprised meetings in Market Square, what we know today as King George Square. Uh, they would go there on Wednesday evenings and alternate Saturdays. And the other Saturday they would meet at the Burns Monument. By May they were claiming to be able... Now this is amazing when you think about it, but by May um, that year they were they were saying that they were distributing 30 dozen copies of their national newspaper, 30 dozen, which came out uh, weekly. Uh, and this was back in 1915, yeah. when printing technology was very different. Yeah, so they printed it in Sydney and it was shipped up here um, and they would receive 30 dozen copies in Brisbane and they would distribute, they would sell or give away uh, to interested people 30 dozen copies of every issue. It's a pretty impressive circulation for a very tiny organisation at that stage with Absolutely. Brisbane's uh, population. Um, they, Tank Street in the city was another favoured spot where they'd, where they'd have meetings. Now, the problem was, because of unemployment, um, a lot of them actually had to leave Brisbane just to find work. So many of the militant workers headed north, um, many of them headed west, also, IWW agitators like William Jackson uh, toured uh, the North and the West holding meetings in small and large centres to spread the message of industrial unionism. Who was William Jackson? He was one of the leading organisers for the IWW. Um, he, he spent a lot of time in Queensland, both here in Brisbane and touring around and he was, once the uh, authorities became aware of him, he was under constant surveillance, but it didn't stop him. He moved around the state. He would organise meetings, the street meetings we were talking about earlier. He was also, if there were workers who were in workplaces agitating uh, and involved in the union, usually the Australian Workers' Union, they would invite him to come and speak in the, in workplaces, often in breaks and so on. So he was one of their main organisers and agitators in, in Queensland, a really important figure. So you had two things happening. You had uh, workers who were members of the IWW going out of Brisbane, going north, going west, looking for work, just to keep going. Um, and also you had people like William Jackson who were travelling around spreading, you know, setting up meetings. Leaving unions in his wake. Yeah, so he, he, he would take lots of uh, propaganda with him and um, distribute the newspaper and hold meetings and talk to workers and so on. They didn't have the internet back then. They certainly didn't. He was, he was kind of their, their, their version of the internet. So we had the Brisbane local kicked off. 
The other really interesting thing about Queensland is that on Boxing Day in 1915, Russian-speaking workers in Cairns formed their own local of the IWW. Um, it was local number 12. So a, 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 a local just of Russian-speaking workers was established in Cairns and they asked um, to, to set up for the... The, na the national organisation to fund for them to produce uh, their own wobbly newspaper in Russian, which did happen. So by beginning of 1915, you had two locals in, in Queensland. You had the one here in Brisbane and Mianjin, and you also had the one uh, up in Cairns, um, mainly comprising Russian-speaking workers. The, the IWW preached direct action and revolutionary industrial unionism. Did they attempt to put these ideas into action in Queensland? They certainly did. As I said, um, their, their work began to show results, not only in terms of paper sales and, and literature sales and so on, and an increase in IWW membership, but also in terms of industrial action. Um, it, and it's a bit hard to, to, to find the true history of this because when you read the authorities' accounts, they tended to call any militant worker a wobbly because that was the, the sparaging term that was used for anyone who was militant. So it's not always easy to find who were the real wobblies and who were simply militant workers who were being branded as wobblies. But we do know of some very important... Um, industrial disputes that Wobblies were involved in and I just want to mention a few because I think it's important to understand that they weren't just a propaganda organisation they were trying to organise strikes to win improvements for workers and thereby demonstrate in practice the, the, the superiority of their own ideas about industrial action and breaking down sectional barriers between workers. So one of, the, one of the, the first strikes that I've been able to find that the Wobblies were involved in was in early October 1915. And it followed the success of an unsanctioned direct action at the South Johnston and Marillion sugar mills in, in North Queensland. Uh, following that, uh, the sugar mill workers at the Gundy sugar mill, uh, which is up in North Queensland, um, they held a mass meeting in the, before the season, the crushing season, got underway. What is interesting about that mass meeting was that it included Japanese workers, and this is at a time when the Australian Workers' Union um, had a ban on all non-white or coloured workers being members of the AWU. So uh, that's an indication, because the Wobblies did have this international position, and they refused to allow anyone to be excluded on the basis of race or ethnicity. So the fact that Japanese workers were included in this mass meeting is a very strong hint that there were wobblies, or, or at the very least, wobbly ideas involved. So they held a mass meeting, including the Japanese workers, um, and they demanded a number of things before they would allow the crushing season to start. They, de they demanded two shillings per week wage increases. Um, they demanded better food in the canteen, including, and this is amazing, they demanded that they be allowed to have sugar 
in the canteen. They were working in a sugar mill in the <laughs> sugar industry and the bosses weren't prepared to provide them with sugar. So one of their demands was improved food, including the right to have sugar with their, with their have tea. even a little bit of sugar <laughs> in their tea. Just goes to show oh. what a tough environment it was back then. Another thing they asked for is the provision of a urinal. They had no toilet. Right, So this resonates with me today because, as you may be aware, the ETU are running a campaign over over toilet facilities on it's building sites. Happening. Yeah, yeah. So these guys had no, no toilet. Uh, so they demanded that. They demanded the provision of water tanks at their barracks so they had no natural water supply. Uh, they would have had to catch uh, water, rainwater, another way. So they demanded that there be water tanks uh, um, in, inserted at the um, the barracks. They demanded a reduction in the rental cost of their accommodation. They were being charged by the bosses to live in these pretty crappy barracks. They demanded that, overtime that's, pay, payments. That's happening now too with the farm workers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. living yeah. in a shipping container. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, it resonates a lot with the conditions that many workers find themselves in rural and regional Australia today and a range of other, other measures. So these were their demands... Um, and the evidence suggests that there were there was at least one, possibly more wobblies involved. Uh, the mass meeting was not sanctioned by the AWU. The AWU organiser refused to sanction it. The fact that they held a non-sanctioned meeting again suggests that the, there was the the, wob, the wobblies' hands involved in it. Uh, the, the extensive list of their demands, not just about pay, but all these other things, I think, also points to wobbly involvement. And as I said before, the fact that all workers, including the Japanese workers, uh, despite efforts by the AWU officials to debar Japanese workers from employment, not just membership of the union, but employment in the industry, uh, the fact that they were... About, you know, came to the meeting and were encouraged to participate in the mass meeting, again, suggests wobbly influence. And also, the wobblies themselves, through direct action, claimed that there were, in their words, a few IWW rebels present at the meeting. So we can be fairly confident that the IWW was there. So they, um, unfortunately, they had this mass meeting and they put together this log of claims and they gave the, the bosses a, a deadline to comply. Before that deadline passed, the AWU officials at state and, and district level intervened and they crushed the threatened action and the leading worker activist, probably the Wobbly, was sacked. So as far as I can tell, this was the first industrial action in Queensland that Wobblies had a hand in. Um, the most important, certainly the most successful uh, industrial campaign that Wobblies were involved in um, occurred amongst the rouseabouts or the shed hands and the shearers in Western Queensland in 1916. So in January 1916, a flyer a leaflet was circulated amongst shearers and shed hands in the west of Queensland and it called on shearers and roustabouts to implement a go slow and th this is some of what the leaflet said in deadpan tone shear 20 sheep well sooner than tomahawk 200 if you start rushing you will very likely cut and maim the sheep 
Don't allow sand and chips to get into your machine. It'll run hot. Don't run hot yourself, rushing into the pen for a catch. If your machine runs hot, wrap a piece of cloth around it. Oil it plenty and often. If this does not cure it, see the expert. If you get overheated yourself, be very careful to obey your physician's orders. And it goes on in this tone uh, for, for another 200 words or so. And it ends by saying, don't, uh, don't pick your pieces carefully as in your sheep. Don't dump them. It takes time to pick pieces properly. Be a careful slave and you can win. <laughs> be a careful slave. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, don't don't speed up. Just keep it nice and slow. So that leaflet was circulated, and then in April, a strike erupts. First amongst the rouseabouts, then involving the shearers, and a fellow called H. L. Fish. Unfortunately, I don't know his first name, but his his name was H. L. Fish. He was a known member of the IWW. He ends up as chairman of the strike committee. And they were demanding wage increases for shed hands, the presses and the shearers themselves. The AWU local, state and national officials refused to sanction the strike, refused to publish details of it, refused to provide financial support to the strikers and failed even to warn New South Wales shearers not to go north and be used as scabs. By the 7th of May, the workers in Barcaldon, Winton, Hewenden, Richmond, Clermont and Charleville were out on strike in defiance of state officials of the AWU, who even went to the extent of, of uh, pu publishing a statement in the work of the AWU official newspaper saying that they did not endorse the strike um, and it virtually was an invitation to other shearers and, and workers to go and scab. In mid-June, another wobbly, Jay Rice, reported that the workers at Hewenden, Winton and Central Districts had returned to work after receiving an increase, but the Charleville men, having not received the same offer, were still out. Eventually, the increase applied everywhere. The shearers won an increase of three shillings per hundred sheep and the shed hands won an increase of 12 shillings, six pence per week which was uh, a pretty significant um, increase on what they would have received under the existing agreement. Um, the Bosses newspaper in Rockhampton, the Capricornian, reported the outcome under the headline, The Tyranny of Labour. And after the victory in Queensland, the strike action spread into New South Wales with IWW activists again playing leading roles on strike committees and the IWW in Sydney collecting and sending funds out to them to support the striking workers. By September, most of the New South Wales sheds were shearing on the higher rates. So this was a dispute began by Wobblies in Queensland, Western Queensland, one in Western Queensland then spread to New South Wales where the Wobblies again were uh, the key organising elements in the strike and again against the, um, um, the advice and without any support from their own officials, they won. Improving conditions across the whole industry. Pretty much, yeah. So after the victory, um, one of the leaders of the pastoralist union, the bosses union, J.A. Campbell, had this to say or had this to complain about. 
The AWU officials were desirous that its members should loyally abide by the award and officially notify them to this effect, but they were unable to control a certain section of their members who advocated direct action and who took advantage of the scarcity of men caused by so many men going to the war and adverse conditions that face the ship the sheep owners. Now, the adverse conditions that he refers to is the fact that the previous... Um, season had been very wet so the sheep were very heavy with with wool and they the the pastoralists needed to get it shorn otherwise the the sheep could be infected with um oh, so the poor bosses the the worker the, the workers timed it absolutely perfectly and the pastoralists knew it so they had to in the end that's why they caved uh, and the pastoralist um, union uh, was complaining about it but it didn't stop there. That was two, two, um, 1916. In, in um, July 1917, the shed hands and shearers again struck, demanding a pay increase, return fares to the, uh, where they were engaged from, and a 44-hour week. And at least four sheds in Queensland were forced to comply with those demands. So they actually won a 44-hour week, and the Wobblies were again involved in that. And then again in 1918, again under wobbly influence, a meeting of Western shed hands and shearers was held which passed the following resolution, that we, the shearers and shed hands of Queensland, use our best efforts to attain a 44-hour week and fares both ways for shed hands, and that we, realising the futility of the old methods of redressing our wrongs, think the time has arrived when we should adopt more effective and up-to-date methods of attaining our ends, methods that should readily suggest themselves to any intelligent reader. So that's classic wobbly language in the, in the, in the strike motion itself. This report was sent to the press um, under the name of E. Cutler, who, who signed himself off as chairman of the Moscow station. <laughs> right on. <laughs> That's fantastic. So just the last dispute I, I, I want to mention um, involved cane cutters in 1918. So earlier I mentioned the first dispute that I've become aware of, which was um, the workers in the cane crushing mills. This time it was cane cutters. In August 1918, cane cutters around Ingham struck for an increase in wages. The initial 40 men were described by authorities as IWW members. While this is probably an exaggeration, there were certainly IWW people involved. Um, other, other police and media reports described dozens of militants, many of them IWW members, working in the coastal and inland industries of the north by this stage. IWW tactics were evident in the Ingham strike. The workers' refusal to buckle to the AWU uh, officials and the pressure from the police and their militant me methods, such as what they called physical force picketing, where they basically went around and, and uh, physically intimidated scabs. Um, yeah. That, along with uh, disruption of cane trains, there was one incident where they stopped the cane train in the middle of Ingham, Ingham uncoupled all the carriages and uh, told the, the driver of the train to get lost. A few of them were arrested for that. Um, and also the tactic of um, uh, if cane farmers uh, insisted on continuing to have their cane cut by scabs or by themselves, 
they would put a can a lit candle in the cane field and of course the, by the time the candle burnt down they were long gone uh, and the cane field would go up in flames so <clears throat> again part of the very very militant tactics of the IWW and it succeeded um, the arbitration court was eventually brought in and was forced to compel the growers to grant the, the men's demand of a minimum 24 shillings a day now that was what they had demanded so they won um, the exactly full exactly what full, they asked for the full demand dis- again despite the the lack of support and the, in fact the hostility of their own um, state officials and of course of the pressure from the police that's incredible would they have been able to get that result if they didn't employ direct action well we'll never we'll never know that but um, it's a pretty good chance they wouldn't have because the AWU's official position was we'll, you know, negotiate through the arbitration court without any pressure, you know, just on the strength of our arguments alone. Um, and we all know that if we ask real nicely, they'll give us what we want. Yeah, so the, I, I think, you know, given that the court ended up having to be involved anyhow and was forced to um, to, to give the, um, the wage increase demanded is a strong suggestion that probably without the action of the of the workers in the cane fields themselves uh, they they wouldn't have got an increase or if they'd had have got one it wouldn't have been anywhere near the amount that they they ended up winning and finally of course um, in 1919 there's the famous uh, meat worker strike in Townsville and I mean I could talk about that for a whole other episode so I won't get into that today but we do know that wobbly activists were centrally involved working in the um, the meatworks and were very heavily involved in in that strike in uh, 1919 in Townsville so that's just a kind of brief glimpse of some of the industrial action that the Wobblies played a really key role in um, and had success in, you know, particularly in the pastoral industry. They they won significant gains for workers. Right on. We've got a lot, you know, if it's only brief, that's uh, fantastic. So, but... Um how did how did the the Commonwealth government of the day uh, respond to the IWW? Well, the Commonwealth government was most concerned about the Wobblies' anti-war activities. That was the thing that um, was particularly perturbing um, the federal government, and so they they cracked down on the Wobblies. There were twelve members of the Wobblies in Sydney framed um, and and jailed uh, for ars- on arson charges. And the Wobbly organisation, the IWW itself, was de- was banned by Commonwealth legislation. A lot of Wobblies, they, they raided all their centres and um, confiscated their um, printing presses and so on, all their equipment, and outlawed the, the Wobblies, and lots of them were arrested. Quite a few of them were deported. A famous one was a case of Paul Freeman, who was um, who was deported? Uh, he, Freeman was deported to America, and then when he arrived in America, they refused to let him disembark there. So they sent sent him back to America uh, to Australia. He was imprisoned in Australia for a period. Uh, they tried to deport him again. The Americans sent him back. So they, in in short, the the Commonwealth government completely cracked down on the Wobblies. One of the effects of that was uh, quite a few Wobblies came to Queensland because at the time Queensland had a Labor government, uh, that was the Ryan Labor government. 
Uh, they thought that they would get a level of protection, I suppose, from federal authorities by being in Queensland under a, under a Labor government. Um, the, there was some truth in that, I suppose. They weren't hounded quite as much as they were in New South Wales, but it did prove to be a false hope because... We know now that behind the scenes, the, uh, the state government here, the Labor government, was instructing the police basically to, to clamp down on, on wobblies. In the anti-war campaign, in the second anti-conscription um, campaign in 1970, 1917, police worked closely with the AWU and the anti-conscription, official anti-conscription campaign to root out wobblies who were active in that campaign. They were kicked out of the AWU. So while they may have been um, afforded a level of protection that they may not have enjoyed, or certainly didn't enjoy in, in New South Wales and in Victoria, they, they were persecuted up here by the the, the, the authorities uh, under the Queensland Labor government of the time. So as an organisation, they, they did continue, even after they were banned, they still brought out a newspaper underground that was shipped up to Queensland um, and distributed underground in, in Queensland. Um, if they'd been arrested and they could have, uh, the charges would have stuck, they would have been in prison for lengthy periods. So they were incredibly brave. They continued to do what they could in an underground sense, but they were subject to a lot of military surveillance and police harassment and so on. So the organisation itself disappeared, but the Wobblies themselves didn't, and um, some Wobblies went on to play significant roles in the Communist Party of Australia after it was formed in 1920, for example. Some Wobblies ended up moving into the Labor Party and... Uh, and so on, but um, the individual wobblies continued to be active in various ways, and probably most importantly, that idea of uniting workers across sectional um, boundaries, across industries, uniting all workers regardless of their ethnicity and their race, that was something that was the, really their most significant legacy, I think, uh, in that it, it, it started a whole new era of, um, of of unions and union activists who were opposed to things like the the white Australia policy and whatnot, which was of course one of the um, positions taken up by the Communist Party. So they left an important legacy, and I think um, for unionists today, one of the things that we can we can say as a lesson is that if you are facing injustice in a workplace, don't expect. Um, other people to help you do it yourself you know organize your own meeting bring in bring in your union but organize your own meeting get active yourself uh, and that's the real message I think that we can take out of the the wobbly history that workers themselves in the workplace have the capacity and they have the power to organize and once they once they start that process they can get support of their unions by by contacting their unions, but you know, start the ball rolling yourself, get organised yourself, put out a leaflet, do all those kinds of things at the workplace level. Uh, I think that's, that's, 
the embryo of, of really solid and impor- important um, uh, unionism that it starts with the workplace, it starts with the workers, um, and then it can be built upon. If we don't have that rank and file level organising, then unionism stands on a much much weaker foundation i think that's one of the last the lasting messages of the iww experience in queensland you could you could attribute to 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 some of my um thoughts on organizing uh, uh to that as well where uh, the the perfect example is where um you know you you're in your work you you you, you if you can't find your delegate if you can't find a workplace delegate there'll be one in the mirror you know, mm. so yeah. That's right. And a lot of these tactics that the IWW undertook, uh, distributing leaflets and having street meetings, that's things that we can absolutely do exactly the same today, if not at better capacity. People have printers in their houses now. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, going back to the, the, the leaflet that the shearers and the shed hands put out, the wobblies there put out about going slow, I think we can we can... We can look at look to that lesson as well. Too many workers fall into the trap uh, of thinking that if they work hard and harder and harder and harder, uh, somehow they're going to be looked after. Uh, it doesn't work like that. Uh, you know, I think workers need to understand that to look after themselves in the long run and certainly to look after their co-workers, they do need to work to the agreement. Right? Work your hours, take your breaks, don't bust a gut, because in the end, it won't be management who will be thanking you for it. No, work to rule. Mm. All right, we're quickly running out of time, but um, we can't um, not talk about the history of the Wobblies and and, and not talk about uh, their their songs and their poems and uh, things like that. And uh, now there's also, you know, I hope I, I hope that a lot of listeners know who who Joey Hill is, who was a very famous for for writing songs. And and I, I, I've got a, just a short little one that, that that I'll give you that I've kind of changed a little bit to to, to suit our own. And it's uh, it goes like this: it goes, I, I dreamed I saw Joe Hill at Four Triple Z, <laughs> alive as you and me, said I. But Joe, you have been dead a hundred years. I never died, said he. I never died," said he. You know, that's my my little take on, on that. And but but you've got something for to to share with us. Yeah, I, I, I do. Just to finish off on um, the Wobblies, as I said, they were renowned for their singing and for their music, and they put out a, a, a songbook that became famous. And it's still you can still get it. It's still in print. Um, and the number the number one song in that songbook is the red flag and that became the song of the wobblies where whenever they had these street meetings whenever they were together inside in in prison or in meetings they would invariably be singing the red flag so that's probably their most famous song even though it wasn't written by a wobbly they adopted it as their own but the poem i want to bring your attention to is one that i discovered reading direct action and it is called the dishwasher so i i as we enter the Christmas dining season, I dedicate the two stanzas of this poem that I'm going to read out to all the kitchen hands out there, all the all the uh, the, the dish pegs out in uh, out 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 there who are slaving away in kitchens. Uh, as we go into the the Christmas season, where lots of people are out um, being entertained. So the the setting for this poem it, it's about a dishwasher, and the dishwasher is toiling away in a restaurant kitchen 
while she or he listens to the sounds of the sweet piano music drifting in from the restaurant and can hear the chatter of the well-to-do diners out there. And the music prompts the narrator to think about the difference between their life as a, as a dishwasher and the charmed lives of the diners, and it stirs them to action. And in the last two stanzas, the dishwasher is, in their own mind, addressing, talking to the wealthy customers outside. So, as I say, I dedicate this to all the kitchen hands in Mianjin and beyond. The last two stanzas go like this. Go on with the arrogance born of your gold, as now are your hearts, will your bodies be cold. Go on with your airs, you creatures of hates. Eat well while the dishwasher spits on the plates. But while at your feast, let the orchestra play the life-giving strains of the dear Marseillais. That red revolution be placed on the throne till those who produce have come into their own. But scorn me tonight, on the moon you shall learn that those whom you loathe can despise you in turn. The dishwasher vows that his fellows shall know that only their ignorance keeps them below. Your music was potent, your music hath charms, it hardened the muscles that strengthens my arms. It painted a vision of freedom, of life. Tomorrow I strive for an ending of strife. Right on. Okay, well, uh, well we've we so gone over time, but uh, it's wonderful to hear, and uh, this is some, some great stuff. So thank you once again for coming on, Jeff. Now, I think that you're going to make a, a special guest appearance on the 28th. We're going to have a end-of-year end of special, so uh, you, you said you're available to come on, and we'll right. see you then. That's great. Thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, yeah, and um, we look forward to that, but uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we, we really, really enjoy having the Brisbane and Labor History Association come on and it's so relevant and so many things that we can relate to and and stuff like that so thank you uh, Jeff and uh, yeah we'll go to a track here on uh, Workers Power on 4 Triple Z. And welcome back to uh, Workers Power here on 4 Triple Z where you're on oh, Bill I'm Calypso. And, uh, yes, uh, we, we just... Well, that was fantastic, but we went over time, so we're going to have to uh, rush through our last uh, couple of things. So um, there, there's another action uh, on, on Friday, uh, Secure Organising. and um, That's their ongoing campaign against Little Real Estate. That's right. So uh, you can... Uh, so this Friday... What, what? That's midday. 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 And Little Real Estate at, uh, at Spring Hill, isn't it? Yeah, that's the one. All right, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be there. So uh, yeah. if, if you want to meet me, uh, be come along and uh, yes, uh, um, so that so that's happening. Um, also, now we, we we've got to do Scallywag of the Week before we go. You know, um, and uh, the, this week's Scallywag of the Week is se- well, it's it's nearly a combined one, but uh, the 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 main one is, is Sarah Mitchell, who is the New South Wales Minister for Education. Now, you could also throw in uh, the the New South Wales uh, Premier. Now, Dom Peritot, I think his their name is, um, and that that is because uh, they they uh, all, all they want to do is, is they want to pay teachers with thanks. 
Now, teachers want more than thanks. So, th- as we speak, they're marching along Macquarie Street down thanks in Sydney. Thanks don't pay the electricity That's bill. Right. Thanks don't pay the rent. And thanks don't feed the family. So, uh, you know... Um, yeah, they're marching currently. The uh, teachers in in a large congregation. I, I'm pretty sure because before we came to air, I, I seen shots on social media of them getting in buses and, and shoot, getting into Macquarie Street. Macquarie Street is where uh, Parliament is in New South Wales. So uh, yeah, they uh, for being you know uh, or, or we don't like to uh, not generally um, have politicians as, as the scalawag, but uh, it couldn't be helped. So uh, yes, um, and, and so uh, and and there's also there's a. Uh, uh, um, so there's a Rafu thing happening at Dangerfield. Uh, the campaign at the moment, Dangerfield is a retail outlet. It employs a lot of women. Employs a lot of uh, queer. I, people and a lot of trans people uh, and what's happening is a lot of customers uh, well offenders really going in uncover as customers and then harassing these people at work so rafu is trying to fight back and win conditions for their safety that's going to be happening friday at 4 p.m so you could go to two pickets you could go midday to to the little real estate then go to the rafu danger field one and uh, the last one that we'll quickly manage, uh, because uh, it, 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 this one is for Rafui members and supporters, there's uh, something happening on Saturday at 10am. Now, for that one, um, if you're a member, check out the, the website. If you're a solidarity supporter, you can get in touch with me and I can give you more details on that one. Um, and uh, But, yeah, that's... That's our show for the Fantastic. day. Fantastic. Brisbane Line is up next. Don't change that dial. And, uh, yes, uh, and we will see you next Tuesday.